So after five months in India, I finally arrived in the foothills of the Himalayas on a late spring day, wondering what in the world was in store for me. Ramdas had said, nobody can meet the guru, and if you do meet him, you meet him for a day. Well, I thought I'd meet him and then return home, mission accomplished. I'd finally experienced what Ramdas had been speaking about in America. The night before I was take the, to take the bus to the temple where I could meet Maharaji, I met another Westerner, a young woman who I knew from Montreal. She was the girlfriend of a DJ I had hired at the radio station and had traveled to India looking for adventure and somehow found out Maharaji's whereabouts. I was amazed because she had never shown any interest in spirituality. Well, next day we went to meet the Guru, amazing temple nestled in a valley in the mountains with a streaming river running by it. I sat with a few Westerners I had met the night before, including the woman from Montreal. Suddenly the doors to his room burst open, and to my astonishment I realized I knew him. I knew him because whatever I felt from Ramdas, he was the source. And it was beyond what my experience could categorize. But mostly it was a feeling of being home for the first time. I dove at those feet. It wasn't even a thought in my mind. I later thought about it and, wow, I was so screwed up in my head about this with that Swami. And this was like not even a thought. Anyhow, then he looked at me and at the young woman from Montreal and said through a translator, friends from Canada? And then time stopped in its tracks. It was as if we had been sitting there for a month. I noticed the space, the very ethers were enveloping my entire being. And I remember thinking, this is the unconditional love that Ramdas talked about. He wasn't bullshitting, this was real. And what they said to me at the time was, well, all right, don't give it up if you can't. Later, everything will be possible. Now it's important for you to work with that energy. And I, in my sophisticated Western sense, said, well, what about Tantra? How about Tantric sex? And they said, well, that isn't part of this particular yoga. We will have to explore that independently. I have since thought a great deal about Tantra and talked with many people who are using Tantra. Tantra is very simply, it's a much broader thing than sexual Tantra. Tantra is merely the process of using anything external that is available through your senses to go beyond it. That's all. This is Tantra. Using a mala is Tantra. The guru external to myself is Tantra. Anything external to yourself that you use is Tantra. So when you use another woman, another person, a woman or your sexual partner, to work through the sexual relationship to go beyond it, that is a tantric method. Now, the problem with tantra is that there is a very grave risk of getting trapped in your method. And you'll see that this is particularly difficult as we talk on when you're dealing with the desires that are the strongest because you're, the whole matter of enlightenment that is required is what is called renunciation. But when you think of the word renunciation, many of you think in terms of people living off um, in the woods, 
having like Milarepa or something like that. Well, that's an external manifestation of renunciation. Renunciation very simply means not the renunciation of action, but the renunciation of the desire. Right? It doesn't matter what you do, it's how much you're attached in doing it. That's what the critical issue is. You can live like a Westerner. If Maharishi Mahesh wants to stay at the Hilton, it's cool, as long as Maharishi Mahesh doesn't give a damn about staying at the Hilton. If he would be just as happy in a hut, he can perfectly well stay at the Hilton. And if he can't be just as happy in a hut, he maybe can't afford to stay at the Hilton. Spiritually can't afford it. See, and that's the measure. Each person has to look at for himself as to where he is an internal matter. It has nothing to do with any, there's no external way. You can have a person living in the jungle looking like a renunciate and he's completely attached to the model he has of being a renunciate. And what is so seductive is that most of the yogas have a trap in them that one becomes attached to one's yoga. One becomes attached to one's vehicle. Now in India, it's an interesting thing. When you are very much caught in nature, it's said you are at the mercy of the gunas, the uh, various aspects of nature, and you are bound by an iron chain. And when you have finally managed to separate yourself from tamas, which is ignorance and darkness, forces of darkness, and rajas, which is the forces of action and high energy, and you've become a very sattvic person, meaning a very pure person, working towards enlightenment. So all the desires that are left are the desires to become enlightened. Then you are attached by what's called the golden chain. And the statement is, that a golden chain is certainly nicer than an iron chain, but baby, it's still a chain. And finally, you have to even be, give up being a good guy seeking enlightenment, you see. You have to give up all of your vehicles, all of your models, all of your desire, all of your attachments, all the way along. But it has nothing to do with your external behavior. You might get that, work with that, because it's a very critical point. Now, um, to say a little more about the uh, brahmachari first, I finally did adopt continence, which I would like to point out that brahmachari is quite different from celibacy because it is one thing to merely turn off overt sexual act, acts and you can live out your fantasies or store up your energies or something like that, sublimate, displace, something like that. Brahmachari is the process of taking energy that is existing in the body in the form of what is called bindu, which is a form of energy that is used in sexual behavior, and through a process you work at in your body to convert that energy into a finer type of energy that is used in spiritual work, which is called ojas. And so the conversion is from Bindu to Ojas. And it is, uh, it is a process that many of you recognize involves a pranayama, it involves kundalini, it involves working with the spine and opening up the sushumna, the thing inside the spine. I'll talk a little bit more about that when we come to pranayama. However, the difference is you're not just stopping sex, you're redirecting the sexual energy and the experience is certainly 
highly parallel to much of what you reach for when you go towards a sexual experience. And the, 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 the part that finally awes you is to appreciate the fact that all the time I was reaching through the motorcycle, through the airplane, through my sexual partner, through power, through fame, through any of those things, for that feeling inside myself, that feeling which we can call fulfillment, the feeling of, of it's all right, the feeling of yeah, or wow, or the feeling of contentment, the feeling of uh, feeling of bliss, feeling of ananda, bliss. That feeling, all of it, even though I use those external things to start the process, they were my yoga, that feeling came from the same place inside, always, always. Somebody gives you a big job and they say, well, you must be pretty good and you feel that great feeling, that's that place. There's an ego thing that got you there, but it's the place, that's that place. You just have your moment of orgasm and oh, yeah, you've merged and it's a unitive thing and you look at the other person and you say, I love you. It's just like looking at your mala and saying, I love you. It was a vehicle that got you to that place. And then when you begin to understand that that is the case, that all those places are the same place and that it's a place inside you, then you say, well, now, isn't there a direct method of going to that place and staying there? And then you start to understand what brahmachari is. Because this whole process is a process of residing in that place all the time. I must explain to you that when you really understand where my guru is in what's called Sahaja Samadhi, that means he is in a fully realized state all the time. Now, I'll tell you exactly where he is. If you are making love to somebody, sexual love, and you are very relaxed and it's a very beautiful experience and you get very close, and as you approach the moment of orgasm, there is a merging experience so that instead of being her and me or, you know, the other person and the self, there's just the experience. And there are so many arms maybe and so many legs, but even those may be gone. And there's just the feeling of the experience and both people are merged in that place. And if your sex is particularly good, you are in that place and you try to maintain that place because that's the highest peak. It's the blissful union, union, the yin-yang merger. The polarities have come together. If at that place you pull your head back from your beloved to look at your beloved, in other words, you go back into the polarity to love the beloved as a separate entity only to go back into the merger. You understand that place where you just keep going like, oh, yeah. oh, 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 it's just that, that's where he lives. That's where he lives. His beloved is God. And he goes right in and out of that little place. It's just like, a, but it's like at the rate of breathing, the rate of breathing. It's going into the union, back to the, back to the duality, back into form, form to formless, back to form, right at that edge. Right. He just comes back into form enough, keeps the body going, and it comes back to worship. Comes back to worship. 
Okay. I want to make the parallels between the sexual gratifications, which are usually genital sexual, but in Westerners that are very sophisticated and have worked much in opening themselves up sexually, gets so that it is not any longer genital sexuality, but total in the Freudian sense of everything becomes uh, um, sexual, erogenous zone. The whole body and the whole mind becomes an erogenous zone, one large erogenous zone, and people are just merged in a sexual union. Well, that place is, that, is the place we're talking I used to kid, I didn't understand, you see, before I went to India, I remember giving a lecture and I remember saying, you know, there are some of these yogis in India who go sit in the mountain and they sit cross-legged and you feel poor guys, there they are all alone. But man, they're really, they're just like in orgasm all the time. And everybody laughed and I laughed and it was all very funny because I didn't believe it. <laughs> now that I know how Shakti and Shiva merge through Kundalini and now I know it from inside, now it's a, quite a different matter. All right, in Pranayama, I'll talk more about what you do about the sexual energy. Let me just deal with the other things in Yama. Now, the implication of non-killing is interesting because um, I wear uh, leather sandals, but these leather sandals come from the Gandhi ashram in Delhi, which are made from cows that died naturally. See? <laughs> Every time a cow dies on the street, they call up the Gandhi ashram and they send a truck over and they take it and they make sandals out of it for nuts like me. And it's... Um, it's like my teachers, the way he started to teach me about this, he wrote on his slate, snakes no heart. Right? Meaning, you don't, when you're pure of heart, when you don't mean harm to anything, you don't have to worry about snakes because they are appreciative of where you're at. Right? They won't do you in unless they feel a threat from you. And that is the reason why I am part of the reason why I am on the diet I am on, which is a vegetarian diet. Because they feel, and I only, I do what I'm told, but they feel that since you are what you eat, and since the cells of animals that die violently have all the chemicals that are released at the time of violent death, fear and anxiety and so on, that this does affect the constituency, the components, the composition of your cellular body. And as your consciousness gets finer and finer, then what you are made up of is your environment in which that consciousness is dwelling. It's the temple in which you are living. And if that temple is full of those kinds of vibrations, it's at a much finer level of energy than gross body level, the finer level of energy, if your body is made up of that, uh, it's going to bring you down. It's going to catch you up. It's going to create a bad environment in which to work. Non-killing, non-stealing, and non-receiving of gifts, there's another element of them that's very interesting, which is very rele re relevant here in the West. And that is the degree into which, and truth is part of it also, the degree to which one sees any other individual as object in relation to oneself. That the polarities that we exist in in the West... I have gotten to be such that we create our polar opposite all the time. I know many of you will feel uncomfortable when I say this, but the hippies create the police as much as the police create the hippies. That the liberals create the conservatives. 
the protesters create the John Birchers just as much as the John Birchers create the protesters. That as long as you are attached to whatever pole you are representing, the vibrations which you are sending out are creating its polar opposite around you. If you can do whatever is your karma, which may be walking in a protest march or fighting in Vietnam or being a conservative or a liberal or being a housewife or being a yogi, and can do it without attachment and do it fully and thoroughly, but without attachment, then you do not create that karma. You do not create the polar opposite. And therefore, what they are saying is that if the, that certain acts have in them the implicit recognition of treating other people as object, when you steal from somebody else, when you harm somebody else, because you're harming yourself. But the key one that we Westerners have to explore is the one of truthfulness, because I realized finally that there was nowhere to hide, that I could not afford any longer not to tell the truth. That the subtle kind of deception that we impose upon ourselves had to go, had to go. I've got a new routine now. When people come to visit me up at my cabin up in New Hampshire, I say to them, I'm not interested in social visits if that, you know, we're working together. And I demand in this situation, total truth. I say, is there anything you can think of that you can't tell me? Anything you can think of, it's like, don't think of rhinoceros. Is there anything you can think of that you can't tell me? Well, one guy thinks I look like an ape, so he doesn't want to tell me that. <laughs> Another guy's got some sexual hang up. He doesn't want to tell me that. I say, well, if you can't trust me enough to share all that with me, if you think I'm still at the place where I'm going to hurt you or you feel hurtable, then we're not ready to work together. Now, the implications of that are this. Sounds like John Kennedy. I want to say this about that. Um, that just like I said at the outset of the lecture, the geese, the geese do not mean to cast their image nor the, the water to receive their reflection or the water to receive their image. When somebody visits me, I am being the witness, that place which is independent of personality and individual difference, and I am trying to make contact with that place and that other person. And at that place, there is no game involved. There's nothing he can do to me or I can do to him. That's the place I went to in that session. How can you hurt me? Kill my body? That's your karma, not mine. Truthfulness is, a, is perhaps one of the most profound ones for the Westerners to understand because our level of paranoia is so deep-seated, so profound. You know, when I went to India, I couldn't believe those people were really existing. In the villages, they are so pure. They are really so pure. Like somebody would walk 10 miles out to the temple to bring me some fruit just because they wanted me to have it. And what would I do as a Westerner? I'd think, well, what's in it for them? What do they want from me? I couldn't accept the fact that a person could be doing that pure in acts just out of a feeling of wanting to do it. And when I first read the Ramayana, the story of Ram, it was at a time, a yuga, when things were much purer, not the Kali Yuga we're living in now, that he was an, incarn he was an incarnation in the Satyuga. 
And his life is such a reflection of purity that I would cry at such purity because I couldn't, I had never met anybody that pure. I couldn't even conceive of anybody being that pure. I mean, it was just like it blew my mind when they didn't ask me for a contract, the temple, when they didn't ask me to pay for my food or my clothing. You know, well, what am I getting into here? That was one voice in me saying, the other voice saying, baby, are you paranoid? <laughs> and watching those layers of paranoia like an onion just being taken away one by one as they were making me naked so that my heart could be that open, so that I could really be there with another consciousness because I started to live in the place where there was nothing you could do to me. And when there's nothing you can do to me, I can be totally here for you because I'm not vulnerable. I'm not going to be hurt. There's no risk. There's no risk at all. And when you once know where that place is with another human being, you realize you can't afford not to have it because you're just jipping yourself so badly. I can tell when somebody comes to see me, I look into their eyes, you see. Now, in the old days, when I'd look into somebody's eyes, it was a power play, <coughs> you know? Want to control them or show them how much I, how deep I was or look to see what they were, you know, I was doing something. I was doing something. Now I look at somebody's eyes and I'm doing mantra. I'm just empty, but I'm really here. And I can feel their eyes. And sometimes you look into somebody's eyes and it's like a deep bottomless well. And they're just there at every level, every level you touch upon, they're there. They're, the, they're just so, it's just pure consciousness that you meet. And others, you go just so far and you feel a level drop because it's too risky to get in that close. I mean, I just met you. How can I be in love with you? And I only look that way at people I'm in, you know, that kind of thing. And to realize that that place that you are, which is pure consciousness, which is, I'll play a little game with you and give you the clues. It's light, it's energy. It's also love. It's the same exact place. It's Purusha. It's pure energy. It's the same place in you as it is in me. And when we look that way, we are in that place together. And then we are both witnessing all the rest of our acts, which is all out there from this other place. That's only if you can be truthful. If you figure you got to hide from me, you are still attached to your self image, which has some secrets going. You've got some closed doors in your head. And all I'm saying is we cannot afford the closed doors anymore. I can't anyway. Everything in my life's an open book. You can ask me anything. I'll tell you all my perverse sexual experiences. If there's a Freudian here that wants to play, because it doesn't mean a damn thing to me anymore. It's, you know, that's, that's Richard Albert, man, poor hung up cat, poor hung up cat. What a hard life he was leading. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life being attached to an old model and have it hold me down. It's not worth it, even though there's all this social impropriety and being identified with it. Tough. Now, to shift gears for a second, every morning I got up at around 4.30 or 5, would go to the river to bathe, meaning pouring cold water in a lota over oneself in the dark. This is up in the Himalayas, so the temperature is sometimes 30 or, you know, it's not really, it's not Tibet, but it's, <laughs> it's chilly. You're barefoot right, in the snow and stuff. It's interesting. Um, you develop a thing called Duma, which is body heat, 
which is a, a way of working with the inner things so you create the heat. And for example, one of the Tibetan initiations about Dumo in the Tibetan sects is when a guy is really ready for the initiation, they take the group out to a riverbank in the sub-zero wind and they sit naked by the river and they dip sheets into the river and put them, they cut a hole in the ice, dip sheets in them and put, put the sheets on the backs of these guys and how many they can dry with their own body during the night uh -huh. is the measure of how high they are when they pass that initiation. Hmm. Two glasses of milk a day, internal heat, where's it all leading? You know, what have we Westerners been doing all this time? What do we think this body's all about? I met a yogi who had been um, buried alive for three years. You know? It's like a city, it's a power, it's a little feat. It's like being a high wire walker. I mean, it doesn't take you to enlightenment. He wakes up at the end of three years, he's just where he was when he went to sleep. You know? However, it's impressive. And uh, his arm was all eaten away because they hadn't packed him right and the ants had eaten away one arm. And I talked to him about, um, I, I, I talked with the people that were there about how he did it. And I was told that the only amount of oxygen you need really is for your brain cells and your heart muscle. And that uh, your cells store plenty of oxygen for that purpose. And that's why when you do go into samadhi, you do stop breathing. And when I first started to do pranayama and went through that little place, which I'll tell you about in a minute, it scared me because in my model, you don't stop breathing. That's it for your body. All right, after the bath, back into the, uh, by the um, little coal stove, coal brazier. Then breathing exercises, pranayama and asanas, <coughs> meaning hatha yoga. Then uh, chai, tea, around 7.30. Then I usually... Um, would read something from the Gita or from the Tao or from some holy book. I was only allowed to read the books of realized beings. And that's a very subtle and interesting point. See, when you read a book written by a guy who's writing about realization, what you're really getting from him is all the reasons why he isn't a realized being. I mean, some of the great Westerners that are writing beautiful, insightful books about Eastern method, all they're really doing at the vibrational level is they're taking people on their own trip as to why they're not the realized being themselves. And therefore, rather than being typhoid Tessie, you know, that kind of carrier, and getting involved in that, the rule of the game is you read only books written by people who made it. You can read the writings of Ramakrishna, you can read the writings of Ramana Maharshi, you can read the writings of Gautama Buddha, you can read the writings of Christ, you can read the writings of Krishna and Ram and so on. All the rishis, you know, but you don't read all the ones that we would look to as really good books in the field. Good books in the field. That's study, which is part of Niyama, which is part of the second arm of so I'd read a little bit of something maybe from the book of Tao and then I would reflect on it for a while and then go into a formal meditation for about an hour, which I'll explain later. Then around 11, I'd write a little bit for an hour. I was sort of writing notes and ideas and working on a little book, I guess. Then around 12, my meal was placed outside the door. Sometimes at around 11, instead of writing, the teacher would come and he'd teach me for an hour or so. He'd sit with chalkboards talking to one another and he'd be teaching me. He'd like say, um, 
if you wear leather on your leather on your feet, the whole world is covered with leather. So you'd write that first. So I think about that, and that's pretty makes pretty good sense. Everywhere you walk is leather. You're wearing leather on your feet. You think it's you, but it's just the shoes. It's your foot. Yeah. Then he'd say, if you think of God, everywhere there's God. Same way. In other words, then he would say, desire is the trap. Desirelessness is moksha, meaning liberation. Desire is the creator. Desire is the destroyer. Desire is the universe. And what he was saying to me is, your desires create your universe. You desire sexual gratification, you live in a world full of sex. You desire peace militantly, you live in a militant world. When you are a peaceful being, you live in a peaceful universe. Because the vibrations that go out from you are peaceful and the people that emerge, that are involved in them experience greater feelings of wanting to be peaceful. It's simple as the way, that's the way it works. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.